For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how a long-brewing plan to widen Broadway Boulevard is threatening Tucson's Sunshine Mile. Film essayist Chris DeShiel explores the Hollywood star system. Find out how University of Arizona students, city staff, award-winning chefs, and zoo elephants are working together to turn garbage into gardens. And a poetic essay from Tucson playwright Robert Beverly. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A decades-in-the-making construction project on Broadway Boulevard is the center of persistent controversy in Tucson. Here's Vanessa Barchfield with some background. The fate of Broadway Boulevard between Euclid and Country Club has been in limbo for almost three decades. That's when the Tucson City Council first voted to widen the road. Over the next years, it made plans and conducted studies and fought about what exactly the project would look like. Then came 2006, when voters approved the Regional Transportation Authority's bond authorizing the widening. But sadly, at the time it was approved, they were relying on 25-year-old traffic data, none of which has panned out. So there's a lot of controversy over this project. That's City Council member Steve Kozacic. He cast the one dissenting vote when the City Council adopted plans for the project earlier this year. It's a $74 million Many of us believe boondoggle that uh, really is not necessary based on how people are driving these days. The street is lined with a number of mid-century modern buildings, some of which will be raised by the widening. Many supporters of the project say that by dragging it out for all of these years, Broadway has gone into ruins. Property owners wary of investing in buildings that they'll likely be forced out of. So what happens now? Kazachik says the city council approved what's called the 30% alignment, which basically outlines 30% of the buildings that will have to be acquired or raised along the stretch. That means that a lot of the alignment is uh, etched in stone at this point, and there are going to be very few changes that can be made in terms of preserving some of the buildings that were just uh, designated as endangered. He says construction is slated to begin in late 2017. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. The endangered building designation that Councilman Kozacek referred to comes from a list of America's most endangered historic places, issued annually by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The Sunshine Miles addition to that list was announced earlier this month at a press conference held by the Tucson Historic Preservation Society in their new headquarters, the former Hirsch's Shoes Building at Broadway and Country Club. Andrew Brown was there. Today I'm here to announce that the National Trust has named Tucson's Sunshine Mile on Broadway Boulevard to its 2016 list of America's 11 most endangered historic places. I'm Christina Morris with the Los Angeles field office of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. We look at a number of factors, um, national significance and the nature of the threat and the potential of a solution. And this very much fit all of those criteria. It's a really amazing collection of mid-century modern commercial buildings that I I think a lot of people don't think of modern architecture in the Southwest, but it's here and Tucson has it in spades and this is a really wonderful example and we want to help the locals highlight that. I mean the building that we're in today, Hersh's Shoes, is a spectacular example of a kind of storefront that to be honest as someone who loves modern architecture and who has studied it, 
I have never seen one of these buildings intact. They are almost all gone. So it is rather amazing that Tucson still has one of these here on Sunshine Mile. I think it's also important to think about these beyond just the architecture. I mean, these places really attract small and local businesses, or people who are just looking to do something a little bit different are often attracted to corridors like this, so they become very vibrant. But it's not right now. It's not right now, and I think a lot of that might be due just to the lack of clarity about the transportation project. So this has been going on for at least a decade, and a lot of businesses, it's difficult to operate in an environment when you don't know the future. Terry Kite represents the Bisbee Breakfast Club, an independent restaurant chain that started in Bisbee and now has one location in Mesa and two others in Tucson, where Kite is opening up a third, this time on Broadway Boulevard. These guys and us, were doing our darndest to get this location at Broadway and Country Club opened this month, hopefully. And uh, when you were looking at locations, why did you? Why did this uh, location interest you? The building itself, I think, was the first thing. If you could see the building, it just sort of jumps out, and it's got so much history behind it. That, as well as the location in town and the neighborhood surrounding it, I think we decided was the place for us. Damian Klinko is executive director of the Tucson Historic Preservation Society and an intrepid advocate for Tucson's modernist history. So starting in 1984, this, there was a, a transportation study that resulted in the, the idea of a, of a widened roadway um, and to actually widen Broadway from, uh, from the current four to eight lanes. Although the project has now been uh, decreased from eight lanes to six in width, um, the project has uh, the potential to, uh, to result in the demolition and loss of many historic buildings. In just this two-mile stretch, you can find buildings designed by Anne Risedale, Arizona's only female architect in the 1950s, uh, Bernie Friedman, Nick Keller, William and Sylvia Wilde, Charlie Cox, um, and others. Um, I mean, it really is this wonderful concentration of, of dynamic and unique buildings that you can't find anywhere else in the world. It takes time for the public to sort of begin and, and individuals to begin to sort of understand that mid-century architecture is important. But we see national trends now where people are beginning to look at this as something that really is value and truly is American. What we're really requesting is that the city create and adopt a series of guidelines that have been proposed by architect Bob Vint, who was tasked by the mayor and council of working with the city um, transportation department around this project that actually creates a framework for better addressing how these historic resources are dealt with. And that this isn't done as an afterthought to the roadway, but really done as an integral part of the transportation project. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Andrew Brown. The debate over the future of Tucson's Sunshine Mile is expected to continue until work begins in early 2017. They Had Faces Then. That was the title of a Hollywood film retrospective written in 1988. Part of the book's thesis was to bemoan the lack of larger-than-life movie stars, the kind whose dramatic looks were interpreted on movie posters and in portraits, with the kind of grandiose style usually reserved for Greek gods. Now, almost three decades later, we're even further removed from the days when being a Hollywood star also meant being an icon. Here is film essayist Chris DeShiel with a look back. Is there such a thing as a movie star anymore? Well, it depends on what we mean by that. The use of the word star for an actor began as theater slang, 
and it meant someone whose talent shone brighter than the average performer. When Hollywood adopted the term, it gradually took on a greater meaning. In a film, the actor's face becomes a work of art in itself. You can see it in detail, and a lot can be communicated just through expressions, unlike on the stage where the voice is preeminent. And as actors developed a style peculiar to film, a new relationship to the audience emerged. The face and physical presence of the actor, along with the voice when sound came in, began to have a power of its own, independently of whatever role he or she happened to be playing. Film producers and directors noticed this, and the idea of the movie star was carefully crafted. Referring to stars, people used to say, the camera loves her or loves him, and that meant that there was a special quality of that person that could be captured on film in a beautiful way, in a way that would captivate an audience so that people identified with the star's image and personality. Greta Garbo is probably the best early example. She was lovely in real life, but when her face was on a movie screen, there was something mysteriously alluring about her that would just grab viewers and draw them into the picture. The studio cultivated this romantic quality in the kinds of films she acted in, how she was lit and from what angles, and of course, the publicity. But not everyone had this kind of quality. The studios would try different performers to see if they clicked. Many didn't, or only hit a minor key. But a few became what they called stars, major players that you could build an expensive movie around. Gary Cooper, Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, Errol Flynn. At one time or another, they could all bring people into the theater just because they were in the film. Audiences wanted to see these faces, these people, reappearing again and again in different roles. Now, each star was also an actor, by which I mean that there had to be some skill in performing a part in a film. Of course, a lot of stars pretty much played themselves most of the time, managing to be compelling just through force of personality. Gable and Cooper and John Wayne come to mind. James Stewart had a recognizable persona, the sincere, somewhat awkward, small-town boy, back when they called him Jimmy Stewart. But then later in his career, he stretched to become a tougher and more versatile actor. Cary Grant had one of the most unforgettable star personas in Hollywood. Consequently, people underestimated what he could do. So when you see him in one of his great performances, such as His Girl Friday, it's astounding. Betty Davis, with her unconventional looks, could be glamorous when she wanted to be, and she usually played a certain kind of melodramatic part, but she also thrived on roles that allowed her to submerge herself into a character. Then there were actors who were famous enough, but they were primarily actors and not stars. The British especially were like this because they came from the stage originally and had that fine English stage training. Charles Lawton and Laurence Olivier, for instance. In any case, the movie star was a special kind of an actor with an elusive power. When the old Hollywood studios finally faded away, stardom faded with it, ever so slowly. The new type of film actor, the anti-stars, if you will, like Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift, made such an impact that they became stars in spite of themselves. A star then came to mean an actor whose style of performance struck a chord with audiences. It would have been unimaginable for an eccentric risk-taker like Jack Nicholson to be a star in classic Hollywood. But in the 70s and 80s, it was just what people wanted. So, do movie stars still exist today? At the risk of offending those of you who feel a special connection to a current film actor, I would have to say no. What we have are celebrities, popular actors, even a few that are glamorous. But that special quality that clung to a movie star, I don't see it anymore. And why is this? Actors are no longer carefully groomed by the management, 
they control their own image. And they're not always good at that. But I think a deeper reason is that the relationship of the audience to the film has changed. There's no longer that strong identification with the face and the persona on screen. People seem to crave excitement, euphoria, instead of that involvement with the image that used to be so powerful. Filmmakers pump adrenaline into the movies with computer-generated effects and fast, relentless rhythm. The personality has been sacrificed in favor of the spectacle. And in fact, many of the younger actors seem interchangeable with anonymous fashion model type good looks. It's tempting to bemoan the loss of the movie star, but I think in some ways it's probably a good thing. Inevitably in films of quality, the focus returns to excellent acting and portrayal of character rather than an idealized personality. The star steps aside to make room for art. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. And now, the sixth episode of a nine-part Arizona Spotlight series, Feeding Our Future. It explores the innovative work being done to feed families, prepare for climate change, improve health, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. This series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. Fifty years ago, the motto of the environmental movement was Reduce, Reuse, and Recycle. Back then, no one was talking about the problem of food waste. Today, scientists warn that food waste is a major contributor to global warming. A University of Arizona student group has found a way to divert millions of tons of organic waste from Tucson's landfills and turn it into a profitable green business. Laura Markowitz reports. In his poem titled Compost, Walt Whitman wrote, Behold this compost, behold it well. Before you behold it, you smell it. I actually enjoy the smell of compost. I, I do. Alana Girardi is smelling the pungent compost right now. It's beautiful. <laughs> the University of Arizona senior is a member of a student group called the Compost Cats. It's become one of the biggest composting businesses in Southern Arizona. In the five years we've existed, we've now diverted more than 11 million pounds of material. From area landfills, Chet Phillips is the Compost Cats project supervisor. Have you all been doing a lot of sifting? Yeah, we just sold 400 cubic yards. There's really not much to behold about compost. This is a five-acre plot with long rows of mounded-up organic material. At the end of the newest row, you can still recognize whole tomatoes. Some of them still look edible. There's also a pile of rotten plums and cantaloupes. The rows further back have been cooking in the sun for a few months, and those just look like lumpy brown soil. This whole project originated from a student idea. To collect food waste from the student union and turn it into compost. Being at the university and just watching these students, they have like their whole sandwich and then they just throw it in the landfill and they don't actually think about where that's going or who didn't get a breakfast sandwich this morning. I wish I could go up to every single person and say, hey, finish your food. One in five Americans go hungry every day. That's Jared Blumenfeld. He's the Environmental Protection Agency's former regional administrator. A third of all the food in our country ends up in landfill. About 25% of all the fresh water in the United States 
is used to make food that we throw away. He presented the compost cats with a national award last spring. Within two years, you got more than a thousand percent increase in the food scraps going to compost. This is an incredible example of what can be done. What does it take to make compost on a large scale? There are 17 compost cats. These are paid positions, and they do everything. The business planning, marketing, training, and farm work. We're monitoring the temperatures. Uh, we're monitoring the soil, turning and watering about three times a week. They do the heavy work with tractors. All the compost cats are OSHA certified equipment operators. Yeah, I'm having, <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun. Tractors are expensive. So the Compost Cats partnered with the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. They had equipment they weren't using, so they lend it to the Compost Cats in exchange for 10% of the finished compost. We would be nowhere without our partners. Uh, we are broadly collaborative in how we work. We started at the Campus Ag Center but ran out of space there, and San Javier offered us a trade here at the Tribal Farm. It's down the road from the famous mission. They take 20% of our finished compost in return for our use of land and water and some equipment sharing. When the compost cats moved to the farm, they needed more stuff to compost. So we approached City of Tucson Environmental Services. They're the ones with the garbage trucks. The city and the compost cats teamed up last year and started the Food Cycle Program. The city's trucks pick up food scraps from commercial restaurants and stores, and they deliver it to the compost cats to process. Nearly every supermarket chain in town participates in Food Cycle, and also the Tucson Convention Center, the university, local restaurants, and school districts. Dick, what day does the compost cats pick up? Remind me. Thursdays? Yeah, Tuesdays, Thursdays. Thursdays. And the Star Pass Marriott Resort. The sprawling property overlooks a golf course in the Tucson mountains. How easy is it for a big resort in Tucson to be part of Food Cycle? This month we probably served over 40,000 people. And created tons of food waste in the process. Daniel Perez is executive chef and director of food and beverage. We're walking through the back of the house. That's what he calls the hallways that connect the resort's kitchens. He stops to look inside a food cycle bin. It looks just like a blue recycling bin, but it has a yellow lid. This one is half full of pineapple tops and melon rinds. They were cleaning fruit this morning for the buffets. He checks another bin. So you can see all the coffee grounds going to the compost. What's happening with that plastic cup? I don't know. I think somebody missed the bucket. Plastics can't be composted. Neither can meat or dairy or fish. We've had to build new habits to be able to say, no, 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 those scraps need to go to the compost bin. Some of the compost cats came to the hotel and trained the staff. Perez first had to explain to his crew why they were joining the food cycle program. Look, this is why we need the scraps. This is how long it takes for the soil to get re-energized with this process. The Marriott buys from local farms, so re-energized soil means better tasting food. This is all Sleeping Frog Farm stuff on the San Pedro River Valley, east of Benson. And some of these pears that they've been sending are awesome. I'm gonna steal one. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> After a few more bites, he tosses what's left of the pear into the food cycle bin. 
Tomorrow, the city will pick it up and take it to the compost cats. In around three months, it will be spread over a garden as soil. Maybe it'll be spread over a pear orchard. That stuff's coming right back into our culinary plates. Relocalization is not just about getting fresh local vegetables in our restaurants, but relocalizing the sources of our fertility. Gary Nabhan is director of the Center for Regional Food Studies at the University of Arizona. He says a sustainable local food system needs local compost. Up until five years ago, almost all the compost sold to gardeners and uh, people who had backyard orchards in Tucson came from Ohio by train. The Food Cycle Program diverts around 225,000 pounds a month from the landfill. That's just from 50 businesses. So why doesn't the city require everyone to sort their food scraps the same way it requires everyone to sort their recycling? My house, I probably have, in a week, maybe a pound of waste. That's food waste. Sherry Ludlam is a scientist with the City of Tucson's Environmental Services. So we've got a truck on the road for your garbage. We have a truck on the road for your recycling. We would have to put a third truck on the road for compost. It's not going to be cost effective. The Food Cycle Program is expanding into green waste, like tree trimmings and grass clippings from the city's golf courses and parks. And it's also collecting... Zoodoo. Yes, zoodoo is exactly what you imagine. The city's Reed Park Zoo mucks out six tons of organic waste every week. The muck from herbivores like elephants makes a great addition to compost. We've also now added horse manure into that. From riding stables in town and the Riito racetrack, the compost cats divert all of that from the landfill. They put it back in the food cycle. Compost. It is certified by the American Composting Council, and it smells lovely. Okay, maybe lovelier than it smelled before. Compost is improving air quality in another important way. When organic waste breaks down in landfills, it releases methane gas. Methane traps 23 times more heat in the atmosphere than carbon. That accelerates global warming. As the compost cats will tell you, if we can keep that waste out of the landfills, we can turn garbage into gardens. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. To learn more, visit azpm.org. Everyone has times when the cacophony of voices, opinions, and issues surrounding us reaches nerve-wracking levels. Times when it seems that nothing but the personal sanctity and peace of our home cacti can protect us. Tucson-based poet and playwright Robert Beverly understands. He even sympathizes, but he also suggests there is another way. Brother B's Beatitudes by Brother B. Being me is an exercise of faith. I am who I am by the grace of God. We are all God's children, 
a long lineage evolving from the mother who gave birth to humanity's original offspring. Believing we all came from the same mother and we all have the same heavenly father, I feel related to everyone, like a sibling of the human being family. This belief is essential to the perception I have of myself. I am Brother B, a desert expressionist. My bliss is creatively communicating to discover the common denominator connecting me to others. I articulate wonderful words the way Duke Ellington uses notes to compose and arrange jazz suites. With a rainbow smile across my face, I enunciate wonderful words with prismatic lips reflecting an inviting tone that sounds like your favorite color. Being who I can be is not easy. It is a struggle to deal with people. People are like non-fiction fairy tales. Some people's personalities are unbelievable but very, very real. Different personalities can create a communication challenge. Failure to communicate is irritating and frustrating and makes me lose my patience to be calm, cool, and collected. Rather than being Brother B and connecting with God's children, I find myself saying, who do you think you're talking to? This triggers a self-defense mechanism, and I fire off round after round of my ammunition of ignorance straight between your eyes, acting exactly the opposite of who I desire to be. It is a joy being me. What a blissful blessing having a talent to communicate comfortably with all of God's children. This contradiction is a depressing dilemma, causing me to spend the majority of my time dwelling inside my cactus. In my humble abode, there are no halls and all the windows are covered with long red secondhand curtains, keeping out successfully outside interference. Like inside sunshine, colors and sounds envelop me in an illuminating enlightenment. I feel more environmentally friendly and connected to the community when I'm with myself. My pen is my favorite friend. When we are together, we make something that never existed before by creatively communicating with words upon paper. In my solitude, being me is as easy as a Sunday morning. Being me wherever I be seems to be an unnecessary effort when I'm away from the loving arms of my cactus. What do I do in my home that makes me free to be me? I create with colors and sound. One of the most colorful sounds that inspires me is Prince. No matter how often I listen to a Prince song, I perceive something different and pleasant. Perhaps if I enjoyed people as if they were a Prince tune, I could be more excited about connecting with them. Creatively communicating takes a concentrated effort. It requires empathy, understanding, and humility. Each person I come in contact with is a beautiful blessing. It's an opportunity to experience bliss by being me, Brother B, a desert expressionist. That was poet and playwright Robert Beverly with music by Duke Ellington. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.